people around me were asking kind of, where's my flying car, right? We're in an imagination battle. There's a, a lot about modern life that sucks. No, you can't keep being rich. That said, Disney, call me. I, I, can, I, I could do something. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Today, we are joined by Andrew Dana Hudson, a speculative fiction writer, sustainability researcher and futurist. He has been active in the development and expansion of solarpunk, as well as in advocating for the importance of speculative fiction as an instrument in addressing pressing environmental and social problems of the 21st century. In 2022, Andrew released a book called Our Shared Storm, a novel of five climate futures, a work of speculative fiction based on the IPCC report, in which he explores not just one potential future, but five different scenarios set in the same place and time in Buenos Aires during the COP2054. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Andrew, as one of the main contributors to the solar punk movement, we would like to start with a question. What does it mean to be solar punk? So I think my basic working definition of solar punk is it's a movement to imagine what a sustainable world actually looks like and how we get there from here at the height of all of our crises. And I think being a solar punk or being adjacent to the, the solar punk movement really means that you're a part of a kind of counterculture, right? That the mainstream approach to how we're going to solve the climate crisis and the sustainability crisis is we're going to very reluctantly make high-level treaties amongst nation states. And the nation states are then going to very reluctantly uh, provide funding that is mostly going to go to private companies that are going to slowly transition our energy system and slowly ratchet down our use of fossil fuels, maybe do some other useful things along the way. And I think solar punk is a chance to imagine that this process could be a lot more participatory, that it could be a lot more community centered, that, you know, it, it doesn't have to entirely go from this top-down, private enterprise-driven, market-based methodology that there's a lot we could do that is very high-tech if we weren't constrained to working in the market and making a profit, but wanted to instead build resilience and create a more prosperous and beautiful place to live for us and our family, our community, our friends. Um, and so I think there's a kind of counterculture, countercultural possibility there. And so for me, solar punk is kind of a way to, to flesh out that counterculture, what it might look like, what it might feel like, who might be involved, what projects they might get up to. And, you know, some of that will be done in the form of fiction or art or this kind of like speculative future imaginary work. But some of it is also people just doing this stuff already doing this kind of ground up who, who are sort of inspired by the vision and are like, all right, let's go. This is what I actually want to do right now. Like I'm not waiting for a future in which suddenly this, this happens. Like we can do all this here, which I think is true. So, um, so there's a, you know, I'm on the sort of literary and theory side. Plenty of people are, are on sort of the art side, but then there's people on the praxis and, and activism and advocacy side. And so it's a bigger, uh, a bigger movement than just a, a sort of a, another genre of science fiction, I think. All right. And in regards to, you know, the actual manifestations of solar punk in the real world, because you say that there are solar punks already doing projects. 
that you would c- categorize as solar punk. And this is something that appears to be more difficult to find, actually, because of the fluid definition of solar punk. But you, as a person who is engaged in the movement, you've probably heard about a few projects like this. Could you maybe share with us one of your favorites? Yeah, I think a lot of things that, you know, I I would be like, oh, that's really solar punk, that they're doing that. Some people do hear about solar punk and then are like, okay, what what is a solar punk project I can do? But there are plenty of, of people who just sort of do these things because they feel like they need to be done. And then later we we can kind of retcon them in. So, I mean, some years ago, I, I heard about a project that a makerspace in Iraq did where they rigged up like an Arduino Geiger counter and they went around their community and created a Google Maps layer that showed the ambient radioactivity of their town that was left by the U.S. invasion troops using depleted uranium ammunition, which you're not supposed to do, but we did it anyways. <laughs> and um, that to me is really solar punk, right? I mean, it's like engaged with material reality. It's also a really high tech and innovative. It's there to sort of help a, a community figure out how to live better and healthier. Um, and and, you know, they had to go up against the local kind of business leaders and government who didn't want this to happen because the business leaders didn't want to hear that the street where their shops were was radioactive and the customers might uh, not want to go. Never mind their employees, right? So um, I think that's a really solar punk story to me. There's, you know, another another like map making story I really love. There was a long profile in The New Yorker a few years ago of a woman who got really into using GIS and mapping techniques and decided to to bring it to the Catholic Church, right? The Pope, uh, Pope Francis, you know, he's a big climate guy. You know, Laudato Si is a really interesting document for people who care about the environment. Mm-hmm. And so she she goes to the Vatican and it's like, hey, can, you know, I want to help you with your sort of like land use problems because you own so much land and we can figure out how to make it, make it a a vibrant home for pollinators and all this and wildlife and these sorts of things. And they're like, well, we don't actually have any kind of map. (laughs) We don't even have like complete records of all the, like we've just got a stack of of tomes and <laughs> tax documents dating back hundreds of years. But if you want to make a map, you can. I mean, that's that's to me is very solar punk, right? And it's there's sort of an environmental goal and you're trying to use a kind of like expertise with the material world using modern tools to nudge, push a slow changing institution to do better, right? I mean, that that to me feels really um feels really like the uh, a sort of real world solar punk kind of thing but there's 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 tons there's tons of these things out there wow andrew these are really great examples and i think they highlight most importantly that you know in solar punk it's not about coming up with the craziest next technology it's really about using your local environments to contribute to your local communities and it's really great to see that there's more and more of such projects popping up here and there but we were really curious to hear how your impression of solar punk developed and especially what was so compelling to you in the beginning and how your impression of solar punk kind of co-evolved as you were contributing to it. Yeah. Well, 
you know, I'm I'm a sort of science fiction fan for my whole life. And thinking about the future, especially through science fiction, has been uh, one of the key ways in which I understand the world and you know what it means to be human, uh, what it means to like live a mortal life, right? I think for a long time, I was very kind of hyped for the future, right? And then, you know, kind of in the in the teens, I started feeling a lot less hyped, right? I mean, sort of came out of undergrad and hit the sort of Great Recession. And, you know, social media was fun, but ultimately there was something dispiriting about it. And people around me were asking kind of, where's my flying car, right? And I was like, I never really wanted a flying car, but I can tell something's missing. And I just, I, you know, at some point I stumbled across early solar punk writing and it sort of articulated ideas about a, a vision of futurity that tackles these climate problems that I was becoming increasingly terrified of, that use those crises as opportunities for social transformation, that had a kind of high tech but not staring into a cyberspace vision of being futuristic and and were messy and human and had dirt behind the ears is the kind of beautiful phrase that got around then and and so I kind of was like oh this yeah this kind of unlocks it for me right like this is kind of um, what I feel like has been missing and early on it was super pushing back against the sort of dystopian apocalyptic fiction and movies that was really common in pop culture in the sort of the first half of the teens and then you know we kind of had a lot of politics start to happen all at once right when when i wrote political dimensions i i think i was under the assumption that the sort of neoliberal consensus was just going to smother all whole radical change and so you had to do it from this kind of like sneaky ground up build your sort of beautiful projects in the cracks of the larger edifice approach and i think there's still a lot to that but also you know trump and and Brexit and just like the last the last six years seven years have really shown that no a lot is up for grabs and a lot can happen very quickly and so I think, you know, solar punk has to some extent been shaped by that. It's become a little less where we're like little weirdo commune living squatter anarchists on, on the margins. And and so we're trying to form the competitive alternative to, to capitalism through our sort of sustainable communal living. Um, right. I mean, that was kind of, I think, a lot of the early solar punk. And more and more I've seen solar punk become about you know, larger mass movements about demanding sort of policy changes and and standing up to power. And so as opposed to just trying to sneak around and not get noticed by power. So, you know, the phrase that I, I uh, used in political dimensions of solar punk was move quietly and plant things. And a lot of people have taken that up as a, a sort of solar punk motto. And I still really like it, but I feel like the quietly has become less and less important and more and more um, it's actually kind of important to move loudly and plant things mm-hmm. uh, and to talk as as often and as as clearly and honestly and forthrightly as we can about what kind of future we actually want to live in and demanding that of of others and of power. And I think solar punk plays a big role in that uh, as a 
the way to get people on board with a vision of what life could be like if we solve these problems and solve them well. It doesn't have to be a matter of of giving up some measure of prosperity that in fact uh, there's a, a lot about modern life that sucks and and in taking on these these tasks of global environmental reclamation we could give ourselves purpose and joy and community and togetherness and solidarity and so I think I think solar punk has has started to encompass more of those ideas and, and I think that's really wonderful. Yeah, and I'm sure that the fact that AOC at some point, I don't know when it was exactly, 2015, 2018? No, it was this year. Yeah, it was, oh, it was this year. Yeah. It was when I think she yeah, uh, mentioned, mentioned on Instagram that she was sort of into solar punk. And that's, you know, I mean, for, for those who are the old heads who'd been talking about this in 2015 on Tumblr, it's like, wow, eight, eight years, seven, eight years in our we now have a member of Congress, like literally in the halls of power, espousing our cultural project. Um, that's pretty good, yeah. you know. How did that make you feel uh, being there at the at the very beginning? I mean, at the very beginning, you know, we were just trying to make a thing and sort of saying, like, "Hey, look, there's a space here that's like implied by." Um, implied by the existence of punk genres and this kind of thing, right? And that people have started to fill in aesthetically and with sort of tropes and and values. And, you know, it was, it was really exciting because it the, the people who got into it all clicked on the same wavelength and recognized, like, this is sort of important and it, ma- and it matters. Um, and, and over the years, I kind of came in and out of, of how much I was kind of focused on it and like a lot of the fiction I wrote. Some of it in the early days was really trying very deliberately to be solar punk. And then some of it, I was just sort of pursuing my own creative impulses and wasn't, you know, not so solar punk was, was dark and gritty and all those things that I kind of wanted solar punk not to be. But, you know, some, some of those years were stressful and still are, but, you know, to, to, to see it now, to now constantly meet people who have heard of and gotten excited about solar punk, who have never heard of me is really gratifying because it means it's become bigger than this small town. It's become an actual sort of cultural gathering place that could have some some really profound impacts. But we'll see it. You know, it's, it, you can't take ownership over, over something like this. It's an open source movement. So anyone can take up the mantle. And that's, that's where the the politics come in partly, right? Because you have to be in conversation with people and you can't just be like, no, they're not the real solar punks, right? You sort of have to come collectively decide what you're doing and what it means. And what are your thoughts in general, actually, about solar punk going so mainstream? Is it because it's, it's going to inevitably stop being solar punk then, right? It's, it's a, is it going to be a solar topia or... What is that world going to look like? Is it uh, something that is that we can compare to Ministry of the Future or Ecotopia? What would be cold and w- what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, for a few years there, I tried to draw a distinction between mass left-wing politics, right? Like Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, the Green New Deal, right? As a political program that you would kind of like win power and then you'd, you'd implement this kind of transformative reform and then you'd sort of put a jobs program together that would put millions of people to work doing the, the things we need to do to save the planet. And, 
and feeling like that wasn't quite solar punk, right? That was a sort of majoritarian vision and solar punk was this kind of countercultural vision, right? That couldn't, if, if everyone was a solar punk, no one was a solar punk. And that you did need to have this like adversarial, adversarial approach to, for it to be punky, right? And, you know, I think maybe that's still a useful distinction for some people. And so you still need people who are willing to like put a bandana over their, their face and face the tear gas and, and so on. So I'm not worried about it going, you know, mainstream. I mean, I think in, in terms of like lots of people getting into it, I think if it gets taken up by as a, as a mantle by lots of big corporations, well, then maybe, maybe that would, that would be a, a big problem. I mean, you know, one of the most solar punk pieces of visual media ever produced was produced by Chobani, right? The Dear Alice ad, right? And they, they just really like went for it on the aesthetics. And the, and that was a little kind of like dispiriting at the time. But I think what the actual effect of that piece of media was not to make people go out and buy yogurt. The actual effect in terms of like the world's fate and politics was people stripped out the commodification. They, they claimed it as their own and shared it around as something that you don't need to gravitate towards Chobani in order to feel inspired by. So I think there's going to be a lot of that. I think there's going to be a lot of corporate interests kind of spotting this space, trying to move in and claim it and the people being like, no, and leaving them abandoned or taking what they make and decommodifying it. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I, I'm not too, too worried about that, right? Like the, the sort of the new logo, ad busters kind of, uh, vibe is sort of in the roots of solar punk. I, and I mean, your, your guys' podcast is solar punk manifesto, right? There's no point in doing a manifesto if you're not trying to win millions of people to your cause, right? Because you're like stating your aesthetic and political purposes in a, a clear way that, uh, you don't have to be an insider to understand, right? Like that's the, that's the point of manifestoing. And so if you're doing that, you kind of need to not only accept the possibility that you'll end up mainstream, but like that has to be kind of the goal. So here we are. I think we should steer into it. You're very right. That's the, that's the point. But, um, you know, you also touched upon this kind of greenwashy aspect, you know, and the Dear Alice ad is really something that I, when, when I saw it, I was like, it's just funny that the first time that there's a massively reproduced and shared piece of art on Solarpunk, it's actually an ad uh, just just feeding into capitalism. And this really begs the question or kind of makes me interested in what your thoughts are on glamorization of the Solarpunk movement to, yeah, by the corporations, you know, that this is going to be the new hip way to show things. And this is going to be the new way of making your sustainable future ads by Shell and by ExxonMobil and all those companies. Do you think that this could happen to Solarpunk, that it's going to be twisted by capitalism as it tends to happen? I mean, I think I think there is an overlap between the imagery that solar punk gravitates towards and the imagery that greenwashing gravitates towards. Right. That that is just there. And the thing is, when it when it's when this imagery is used for greenwashing, it's kind of stripped of its political content. And it's like, look, we can have tomato gardens sponsored by ExxonMobil. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's this sort of like general kind of. Um, 
a lot of it is like technicians in like working in labs or on wind farms or something like this, right? I mean, the, we all kind of know this this imagery because we like see it in airports and shit, right? Um, I think one of the reasons why solar punk can be useful is not, you know, it shouldn't be to try to be like, we're never gonna, we, that stuff is icky. We don't want to share or touch or be in the same space as all that greenwashing stuff. Instead, it, the goal should be to, uh, occupy the same space and point at the greenwashing and be like, look, they're greenwashing. <laughs> look at this bullshit. You know, the, those technicians that are sort of portrayed as earnestly and innocently like executing the consensus future, the only reason they have a job is because we demanded permitting uh, reform. And, you know, like maybe they're a part of a union and they're fighting their their boss. And like, I mean, all these kinds of questions and can say, like, why do they have to work for ExxonMobil? Why can't these technicians work for a co-op or something like the public-owned utility? You know, these types of questions can can point out the contradictions. That has has, I think, always been part of the punk ethos, right? The punk ethos was was never actually we're gonna go and live on the land so we don't have to sully ourselves with the compromises of modernity. Like punks are urban, right? They're like on the streets of the city around all of that consumerist corporate bullshit that they hate and they don't pull away from it. They steer into being next to it and kind of reclaiming the these spaces that have been claimed by advertisements and propaganda in a sort of anti-consumerist mode and looking weird and, and having a bad attitude and these sorts of things. And that is, I think, something that, that solar punk still has in it and I think can learn from and can be part of the process. Speaking of this notion of space, as you said, the punk ethos is to resist by occupying and reclaiming space. And when Maxim and I were looking at what solar punk communities were out there that we could reach out to, we ended up finding a lot of those new age, mostly white and privileged communities of people who decided to go off-grid and create their little bubbles. Um, and to us, it felt more like solar privilege than solar punk. And it makes you wonder whether these intentional communities are actually resisting and helping change things for others too, or if it's more some sort of escapism. So we wanted to know what's your thought on intentional communities and what qualifies a solar punk community for you? I mean, I think this, yeah, this question of, of the commune, of the intentional community, of the sort of going your own, your own way kind of thing um, is, is one that is really crucial to, to thinking about solar punk, right? Because I, I think if you dismiss this impulse entirely, you would be dismissing a lot of solar punk work, including mm -hmm. a bunch of my own, right? And the question is like, okay, what are the, the politics of doing this? All right, well, one... Solar punk is a product of, of network society, right? It's one thing to go off of, say, the power grid because you have your own power. It's another thing to go off the communications grid. I feel like if you're doing, if you're doing this in a solar punk mode, you should be deeply in communication with other people who are doing it too, right? There was a phrase going around in sort of 2015, 16, 17, Network of Invisible Monasteries. That was this Australian guy, Mikey, wrote up a bunch of stuff about that's really compelling, right? Like that's a very solar, like 
it's it, you don't want to just sort of go live in the woods, right? Like you want to go live in the woods and be in communication with other people who are doing similar but different, right? So that you're not just excusing yourself from participation, you're like building a kind of cohesive alternative. And maybe it's sort of like, it, it's very, it's disparate, right? It's sort of scattered, but proving in this kind of prefigurative way that there is another way that we could organize communities. Um, the, this kind of demonstration community, you know, it's got to start somewhere, right? Because we're all going to need resistance or, you know, we're going to need resistance and resilience. Resistance to to power, right? And because we, you know, capitalism is still, the sort of consumer culture is still going to demand a lot of noxious things from us. And resilience to climate disaster and the, sort of the poly crisis. So um, that's a that can be a bottom up project to to figure out how to make that work. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I, I situate it now. But it's a really good question. And where I'm at is I don't want to tell people mm, that's not solar punk, right? I don't want to tell people that if they feel like um, the thing that excites them about this vision is getting to create an intentional community that they're wrong, right? Uh, because I think that there's there's room for that. My my goal is to meet people where they're at, find out what they're excited about, and then kind of try and build a sort of bigger bigger praxis and vision and strategy that can encompass a, a lot of different approaches and uh, interests under under the same banner. Yeah, I guess it oftentimes seems that Sorpunk likes focus that it doesn't align itself with any particular firm politics except for being environmentally or socially sustainable but at the same time it's true that solarpunk is a decentralized movement which ultimately means that people will do things in very different ways and what matters is that the dialogue and the communication remains so the goal of Sorpunk is to inspire anybody who comes in touch with it to do something. And I think that's, that's really beautiful. Speaking of politics, you know, touch, touching onto politics and kind of the fleeing nature of Solarpunk, I wanted to ask one thing about decoupling progress from growth. And that is a concept that is really often talked about in Solarpunk and perhaps as an antidote to capitalism. Could you maybe tell us about this concept and how we would imagine communities that are centered, centered around other metrics than growth? Well, I, I guess I should qualify here that, you know, I'm, I'm not like a degrowth guy, right? I have a lot of sympathies that overlap with degrowthers. It's not usually the, con the, the conception that, that I use to approach a lot of these things, but, you know... Um, the way I understand it is, you know, it's an argument that the metrics we use to determine our success, like GDP and uh, economic growth, are just bad for us and that we should find new metrics and that we should consider growth to be not a goal, but in fact, something that we should be really skeptical about. And in fact, if we use those metrics, success would, would actually look like reducing our sort of overall economic activity down to more essential elements because you know, there, there's sort of a thought that we're, that all economic activity has, is tied to emissions and so you, you need to turn the dial back the other way if you're going to turn down emissions. I think this is sort of a, a viable contribution to this larger 
discourse. I'm I'm a kind of a I'm a decouple guy, right? Like I think we can decouple carbon emissions from economic growth. Maybe we can't decouple larger environmental degradation from uh, economic activity, right? If we continue to grow the economy, maybe we can do it without uh, increasing emissions or even reducing emissions. Maybe we're going to sort of continue uh, creating habitat loss and all these other bad things that we should be worrying about. But I think that's an open question, right? I think it's very clear to me that if we were to that if we were to go really hard onto to solar and wind, we could decouple from carbon. And it seems to me really pessimistic to to say that the the only way to, to grow your your economy is is through burning more fossil fuels. That to me doesn't you know doesn't allow for a lot of human ingenuity. I think degrowth is very compelling in the European context. I think it's a lot less compelling in a lot of other places, right? And I think for like working class Americans, growth means like jobs, right? And 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 the truth is, we need to create a lot of jobs in order to solve the climate crisis, right? Because <laughs> we have to build a lot of uh, solar panels and wind farms and power lines and batteries, and send a lot of people out to you know, work on the land and decommission fossil fuel infrastructure safely and do soil reclamation around the gas stations that are these spots of poison on the landscape all throughout the, the modern world. And so that, for, to me, is a, an opportunity to put people to, to work, which I think lots of people are excited about um, and, and isn't a, a matter of sort of top down, we got to figure out how to make number go down. It's a matter of, of sort of dealing with the practicalities of, of providing people of the prosperity that, that they desire through a different sort of technological stack that has this liberatory aspect, which is why solar punk is solar, right? We sense in it liberatory possibilities to the way this technology can be flexible and decentralized and all these sorts of things. And in that process, there is a conversation to be had about what are ways that we can find more meaning that is not consumption-based, right? And what are ways we can fill our lives and, and create relationships and, and so forth that are, are not based on, on sort of consumerist ideas sold to us by corporations. But whether or not that's a conversation best had in a make number go down kind of way, I don't know. So that's my thoughts on, on degrowth. Um, certainly it's a, it's a part of the larger, I think, ideological amalgam that solar punk is, right? If you show up to a solar punk rally or meetup or whatever, wearing a degrowth t-shirt, I'm not going to be like, get out. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be like, <laughs> oh, cool. Here's where I'm at. This is bigger than either of us. And so that's fine. Right. And I actually wanted to ask you something related to how we might expect our lifestyles to change as we move towards renewables. In one of your essays, you said that we could prepare ourselves for a future of energy abundance, where we have so much energy that we don't even know what to do with it. And then you propose to do CO2 capturing and stuff like that. And in other essays, you've spoken about the possibility of us having to go offline at night and think about other ways of spending our time, like playing board games or reading books around the candle and having this really cozy lifestyle, do you yourself have a preference towards one of the options? I mean, I think 
uh, this, what if we had high tech days and low tech nights, right? Like that's really trying to imagine the, the possibilities of, a, you know, not even of, of solar punk, but what's a, what's a photon powered society look like, right? If, if we were getting the vast majority of our energy from the sun, it's a very different situation than getting our, our energy from fossil fuels, right? Like if you, if you build a coal plant, the, the most efficient way to burn that coal is to burn the same amount every hour, 24 hours a day, right? You just sort of have a conveyor belt that's sort of shucking a steady stream of coal into the furnace that boils the water, turns a turbine, all this stuff. And so when fossil fuel power plants first became a thing 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago in some places, and they, because it's really inefficient to sort of turn it off for the night and then stoke it up in the morning, um, they created all these incentives to run factories 24-7 to create energy-intensive activities for people to go experience at night, like amusement parks, discotheques, and movie theaters, and places with lots of lights and music and noise and moving things. And so the incentives are totally different with solar, right? Um, I mean, unless we do a kind of global superconductive grid, right, which um, unless we, we have the room temperature superconductor and ship an electron that we make from a solar panel in Australia to America without any loss, right? But barring that, you know, the sun's going to come up, you're going to start getting energy, energy is going to get really cheap or accessible, right? If you're a bit decommodified, and then in, and it's really going to peak sort of noon to 2, 3 p.m. And then it's going to go down and the season depends a lot on this, like latitude depends a lot on this. And I think solar punk is a chance for us to ask kind of fundamental questions about what we want technology to be and why, right? Do we actually want our technologies to be something that we are touching and working with and engaging with 24-7, right? Certainly there are some technologies that we want to run 24-7, dialysis machines, right? Things that like keep people alive, right? We still need heating so that people don't freeze we're still going to need we're going to need cooling so that people don't roast and they're going to be day night aspects of that but we have lots of sort of recreational energy uses and so you know my my goal is just to encourage people to have the conversation and to think about their own desires i i think it, it could be very nice to have a clear incentive right a social or economic uh incentive to kind of de de screen uh, in the last hours of the day i think that as a writer of books i'd love for books to be able to economically compete with netflix in the evenings imagine if it's going to cost you five bucks an hour to to binge netflix after work you might instead you know spend 20 bucks on a book that's gonna give you 20 hours of reading or whatever that's a much better deal especially when you when you can get it from the library um, so, yeah, I mean, these are all opportunities and questions that solar punk and sort of the larger photon cultures possibility opens up for us, right? They're, they're things that, that we should be asking. Um, and, you know, the flip side of that is, okay, we get a lot of energy in the middle of the day, maybe more than we actually will need to run all of our stuff, right? Our screens, our industry, our, our servers, our homes. What do we do with that? You know, I mean, one clear thing as well, we can get carbon out of the atmosphere. That would be really nice because we and our, our sort of uh, planetary cohort did not really set up to uh, 
survive well in, in a world that's two degrees, 1.5 degrees warmer. It's just going to bring lots of chaos and disaster. And, and so let's try and clean up the mess we've made of the atmosphere. There's lots of other things you can do with a lot of energy, right? You can desalinate water. You know, in, in Doctorow's book, he talks about factories that only run when, this, when the sun is shining, right? And power is free. Maybe those are things that we need. Maybe they're things that we sort of elect to do, right? Maybe they're art factories that are making crazy aesthetic projects just because they can, because the energy to do so is so cheap during those hours. Maybe we're just going to crunch prime numbers, you know, into infinity or, I don't know, do some kind of crypto mining bullshit, right? I think let, let's, I, I want to just sort of make these questions a part of the solar punk conversation, right? Because that's part of what the solar part of it implies. It's true that a lot of our conversations around energy are mostly about the technical aspects of transitioning to renewables. But when it comes down to how these might impact our individual lifestyles and habits, it's always about how we should save energy and keep our room temperature to 19 degrees and switch off the lights and all that. And these are really important, obviously, but it's really all not very exciting. And all these new perspectives that Solarpunk adds to our collective reflection on where we want to go with technology are very different from those offered by other science fiction genres. Um, I'm thinking here more about cyberpunk. Um, could you talk a little bit about the ways in which solarpunk and cyberpunk approach technology and social change differently? Yeah, I think this is something I find really interesting. Cyberpunk as the, you know, it's the first of these punk genres and in some ways the, the one that I think is solarpunk is kind of a true successor for, right? I mean, there's a lot of retro-futuristic punk genres, steampunk, uh, diesel punk, and so on, that are kind of out there. But uh, solar punk to me feels like um, a case where we spun out a technological aesthetic based on a new technological upheaval that was happening around us, right? That's what we're trying to do. Uh, that's what the cyberpunks did in the 80s, right? They were pushing back on the way in which sci-fi at the time was all these people talking about you know there's a lot of rocket ships and and galactic empires and and this sort of thing and they're like hold on we the we have technology that's reshaping the future right here on earth that has nothing to do with these sort of space dreams that we're we're sort of spending a lot less money on than we used to um spending a lot of money on computers networks all of a sudden in the 80s. And so, you know, they, they took that stuff and created a combination of literature and or a very sort of aesthetically tangible literature that inspired all kinds of art and movies and visuals that now we sort of really recognize. And I think that, and they were often warning us, right? I mean, they were, they were being like, oh, this is not actually going to be great to like fill every square inch of the world and including our bodies with microchips. Um, maybe there's a downside here that we should think about before we go too far and get too excited. But they were also trying to imagine what these vast architectures of power could be like if there was a, a liberatory aspect to them, if, if uh, they, they might empower people in new ways when, when they sort of reach the level of the street and the street finds its own uses for things. And so solarpunk, I think, is asking similar questions of a new set of technologies and, and the sort of technologies of sustainability. 
and is responding, I don't think, I don't really see solar punk as sort of situating itself against cyberpunk, but, you know, we kind of live now in the, the cyberpunk world, except, you know, very few of us get to be the, the punks, like very few, few of us are cyberpunks and most of us are cyber proles. We're going and, and working for the megacorps and uh, generally live under the boot heel of the algo and the platform and the feed. And, and sure, there are like hackers out there who are living that lifestyle. But that, that sort of it turns out that even though it's a majority of, of book characters, it's a minority of actual human beings. And so for those of us who, who don't want to become hackers, we're sort of looking for a more authentic way to push back against the cyber world that cyberpunks accurately predicted. And so I think that's where solarpunk comes in or, hey, like takes the new technologies, harnesses them for liberation um, and moves away, I think, from the sort of way in which cyberpunk, I like to say, kind of drove all parts of human life to greater and greater levels of abstraction, right? These are cyberspace is a sort of deep technology of, of abstraction. And you take your body, you take your, your mind and you make it just sort of a point in a, in a matrix and like geometric lines and an infinite void, right? And like you, you never have dirt behind your ears and up your fingernails in cyberspace, right? And it turns out that the we have a lot of problems that exist in material reality, right? We have problems of our climate. We have problems with our land, our water, health, right? So food and water, health, energy, climate, the land, these are all sort of aspects of material reality where we need to engage technologically and in, in high-tech ways and figuring out how to do that and what are the liberatory aspects of doing so. That's kind of, I think, the solar punk project. It's a really cool distinction that you pointed out now, just when you were explaining the difference between cyberpunk and solarpunk and their approaches, that cyberpunk seeks to highlight the negative aspects about the future by exploring these punk heroes in the narratives. But at the same time, solarpunk usually focuses actually on how good it is for the solarpunks, you know, how yeah. ev even though there's this doom imposed by capitalism around them, they're still functioning in a cool kind of inspiring symbiotic way with with the nature and it, it, i have a question about this to you as a person who's engaged in uh, climate fiction and solar punk fiction how do you regard this kind of propagandist aspect of solar punk that you are trying to show people like no what you are doing right now is not great and there are ways to do it different and here's how to do it different or are you merely inspiring and educating people as a writer do you do you see that there's a certain propaganda aspect in the solar punk aesthetic and narratives oh totally i think we need propaganda and like the other side has propaganda there's tons of propaganda telling you to just don't worry about it the thing that is going to uh, make your life worse is not the storm that's going to wash away your house or the heat wave that's going to blow out your air conditioning and roast you to death or any, any of these things. It's like the woke teacher at like the local school, right? You know, I mean, that's all entirely propaganda that's meant to kind of preserve certain power relations and propaganda has a really negative connotation, right? Because usually we think of it as, um, a kind of authoritarian tool, right? So maybe let's not use the word propaganda, right? Let, let, let's use that this is, we're in an imagination battle. That's the Adrian Marie Brown line. 
Uh, I think it's really good. And, you know, in an imagination battle, you wage war as much with images and words and ideas and vibes as you do with the sort of physical world. Solarpunk has a has a role to play there, right? It is it's a major front in our imagination battle to help people see and embrace a sustainable world and help them, you know, see in their own life a way to um, make that possible and to step away from the nihilism and from the death drive and all these things that are really compelling parts of being human. You know, nihilism and the death drive; those have been like very much juiced up by people who have got gotten rich off those, right? Solidarity, community, liberation, right? Um, those have really been squashed, you know, through this sort of propagandistic cultural sort of means. And and so, you know, if we want um, those forces to win, we've kind of got to engage on those those terms too. And in this regard, can you talk a bit about post-normal fiction here? Because I think it's it's really interesting to tie this not only into the fight against the reigning power, but also about the reigning narrative that we're getting and about the climate change endeavors that we're stepping into that is not getting sufficiently exposed. And, you know, the urgency that you try to bring in your novels and especially in Our Shared Storm yeah. is is something that you could describe as post-normal fiction. I find it a really beautiful parallel that you draw with post-normal science. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is a this is a term I made up. So I'm glad people are finding it useful because um, you never know. You may, you coin a term and and you're like, this is brilliant. I'm so smart. But if it never goes anywhere, let's let's or you start to ask, well, uh, am I as smart as I thought I was when I made that up? So you know, the the idea is going back to like the late '90s. Scholars were starting to conceive of sustainability as a scientific discipline and trying to figure out how you could pursue sustainability projects as a scientist. And some scholars, uh, Funkowitz and Ravitz, came up with a notion that sustainability is a post-normal science. And that, um, so there's a famous chart where you've got your sort of standard two-axis graph and one axis is uh, stakes and the other axis is uncertainty. And so right at the in the corner of the chart where there's zero stakes and zero uncertainty, that's like performing experiments in a lab, right? That's pure research where, you know, a negative result is as uh, useful as a positive result in, in theory. That's where, where Kuhnian science takes place of gathering data and testing theories and so on. Um, but if you, as you go further out... But, well, there's sort of applied science where you're trying to do engineering and create working mechanisms and turn theory into useful stuff. And you go further out, there's professional consultancy, right, where scientists are called on by policymakers to sort of advise on, on the right way to, to shape their decisions. And then if you go even further out, where you're not just sort of being this neutral advisor, but actually sort of playing an active role in trying to transform the world to be more sustainable, to sort of help communities negotiate around questions of sustainability. That's where you get post-normal science, right? Where either the stakes are really high or the, the outcomes are really uncertain. Or both, usually. And their argument was that like, okay, this was really different from being in the lab, but you're still doing science. And so I think that we can take some of this and apply it to other realms of life. And so the one I propose is post-normal fiction. 
normal fiction, you are producing a commodity for the market. It is the balance between your creative interests and um, what readers want to buy and what publishers want to publish and sort of how the gatekeepers formulate it. But the main reason to pick up a book is to have a good time or, you know, to sort of like, I mean, there's always been a sort of eat your vegetables aspect of, of literature of that it's going to help you be a better, more empathetic person. Um, but that you're not really like doing, doing politics. You're just writing your own little books. Um, and, you know, I think many authors are the kind of people who sit around and, and procrastinate from writing for much of the day and read and doom scroll and, and read about all the horrible things happening in the world. And so they start to feel very compelled to say something useful about the, the crisis that we find ourselves in, right, to be part of the solution. Um, and so I think the way to conceive of that is to say that you're still doing fiction, right? You're not turning purely into a propagandist. You're just doing post-normal fiction. Um, and that we need a, a whole host of mobilization across every aspect of our society, right? Including all the cultural aspects. So, you know, we need climate fiction and art and music and TV and games not because they're going to fix the problem for us, right? But because we can't fix the problem without that level of mobilization. We can't fix the problem without participation from all these sectors, right? They're necessary but not sufficient um, that we tell stories about the future and, and engage our culture with climate change. And I think there's a real impulse to, to not do this, to do what works, right? So that's sort of a lot of things about post-normal fiction, but it, it's really a, a sort of niche term for those of us who are trying to write this stuff and trying to situate the balance that we feel comfortable with between the sort of didactic and propagandistic parts of trying to put ideas out into the world and what we feel like makes for a good story based on traditional literary judgment calls and, and tastes. And so what I think post-normal fiction gives us a chance to, to say is that you can have both because, and that you have to have both because this is, we're no longer operating in a normal condition, right? Where the only thing that matters is the, the sort of feeding the market. So, yeah. Well, I really hope you get your own bookshelf soon enough with post-normal fiction. I think that's going to change a lot. Just yeah. at least gonna keep people wondering when they walk into a bookshop what it what it is and maybe pick it up and maybe actually read some. And actually, in this regard, um, about post normal fiction, I wanted to discuss this notion that Amitav Ghosh has expressed. First of all, he has stated, you know, that literature or sci-fi specifically hasn't done its fair job of um, enlightening people about the grim effects of uh, climate change. But that's a notion that is disputable because there have always been writers that wrote in that realm but I wanted to explore something else and he has actually stated that he has doubts about literature being the medium to communicate the climate change effects in a comprehensive way purely because it, in his view it's more about the psychology and okay if you want to talk about something that's in the house then it, it does a really good job but if you want to look outside of the house then literature is not comprehensive enough to give a good image of what the surroundings what the environment looks like. Well, and I have to disagree with that because at least I've read your book and I think you do a pretty good job at that. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on the relationship of different media on performing this kind of educational purpose about climate change and whether you think that literature or movies or video games or art is more appropriate 
or that there's a certain interaction between those media. And if you have a preference, I know you're biased, but... First of all, I I, hope, I don't want to throw Gauche under the bus. His book, The Great Derangement, was really talking to other literary writers, right? It really, you know, the, the faux pas was leaving out science fiction, not saying these science fiction writers haven't done a good enough job. He really just sort of ignored the fact that your Kim Stanley Robinsons and your Bruce Sterlings and, and your Octavia Butlers had and people had been writing uh, compellingly and urgently about climate change since the 90s. And of course, it was Ursula Le Guin was the first writer that I think, um, well, I suppose fiction or climate fiction, science fiction writer to talk about climate change. But um, I suppose you could go all the way back to sort of non-speculative people like Edward Abbey and and sort of eco fiction. But he he was talking to his crowd of people who write books that don't get put on on the sci-fi shelf, right? Books that just go in fiction, and you know, oftentimes realist fiction. And being like, okay, if this is really a realist, then you've got to acknowledge this thing that's happening, right? So it, it was sort of more of a scolding aspect was was going towards literary writers, not towards science fiction writers. Science fiction writers, he just ignored, which was is also kind of uh, annoying. But nonetheless, I think we've all kind of moved past this now. The book came out in 2017, 2016, and I find The Great Derangement to be really useful. And, you know, one of the ways I interpret The Great Derangement is that he he expresses some concerns about the the sort of the scope and limitations of the novel, right? Which is a a particular form of literature. It's not the only type of literature, right? Um, there are many other traditional forms, but the the sort of the bourgeois Western novel, um, yeah, has a kind of scoping problem that, and it can tell us a lot, but uh, increasingly has has been sort of scoped down further to a sort of more individual. Um, experience and less of a sort of societal planetary experience. So that's a sort of an impulse that we have to try and push back on a norm that we have to try and uh, shift in order to in order to talk about planetary problems. Uh, and, and yeah, sort of not just tell the story of what happens in the house to the dysfunctional family who love and hate each other at the same time and to have all these traumas and, you know, the sort of the stuff of of literature, um, but also worry and discuss and bring to the page some of the some of the larger forces that are threatening to blow the house down and wash the house away and set the house on fire and deprive the house of of uh, electricity and water and all these sorts of things that is actually going to be in the human experience for for millions and billions of people over the coming decades. You know, and and those forces are you know are are not just random anymore they're a, a function of of human action and inaction and we can't just sort of chalk this up to an act of god or poetic when a storm blows through it's something that we did and that that's a very different way of thinking about the things that that the planet inflicts on us and so you sort of have to start talking about the heat in the atmosphere and the greenhouse gases that trap the heat and the machines that emitted the greenhouse gases and the economy that the machines run and the energy that powered the machines and the policies that make all this make all this possible gauche's kind of solution actually in the book is to say like you know okay maybe let's let's start to move away from the novel as the premier form of literature 
and try out to write like the epic again, try some of the picking up some of these forms that have, have become less in vogue. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, science fiction writers have been writing epics much more frequently than, than literary writers over the last hundred years. So we're already primed for that. Um, I also think that I mentioned Dr. O's Lost Cause book earlier, right? I wrote an essay recently kind of being like, oh, look, you know, you can kind of write a climate fiction book that is sort of about the size of a house, right? To take that metaphor that I extracted from Gauche. Um, and because it really does feature one house and was the fate of this house. And and so I thought that's a very interesting approach that Corey took. Um, to To the question of like, you know, what's the right medium? You know, there is no right medium. The right medium is all of them, right? The right medium is is whatever we, we need to be firing on. I, I, I don't want to say firing on all cylinders because that's a fossil fuel metaphor. No, we need mm-hmm. to be sending electrons to every one of these cultural apparatuses and supercharging them to, to talk about these things. So, you know, I, I like writing fiction. And but we definitely need climate movies and games and TV shows and and music and poems and and dance and and performance pieces and jokes. And yeah, so um, if not always in a in a purely didactic mode, but just at least in a mode where acknowledging that this is real and exists and is a is a part of our what we should be talking about and dealing with as a collective. So. Um, so yeah, all of them, um, I'm going to do my thing, right? Like I'm going to do my little stories because that's, you know, what I'm good at. I suppose if someone came to me and wanted me to, to do a movie, I'd be like, sure, let's do it. But I've got my creative habits here. But I think if you're a fiction writer, you should write some climate fiction. I don't think you should be like, well, I want to figure out what I can do to contribute to, to stopping climate change. And I, so I'm going to go and, and learn how to write fiction so I can write climate fiction. You know, I mean, go, go put a solar panel on a house, man. I mean, if like, that's going to be a much more direct way to, to improve the situation than writing a, a you know, a book like mine. Uh, you know, I wrote a book like mine because I, I, I sort of am compelled <laughs> to write something. And so I should, uh, write something useful, but there, there's room for everyone and room for every, every medium. Um, I agree with you that, of course, everything should be taking place as much as possible to to spread the word. But it's about the comprehensiveness of a particular um, impression that you want to leave and you want people to walk away with. And I think you've spoken about video games for that is one of your interests because it creates kind of this immersive world uh, in which you can place yourself and imagine what a world like that would look like. And that might leave a really really strong impression that is perhaps could stronger reverberate through society. And I, I believe that movies could as well. But in this regard, I actually have a, a, a more interesting question for you that I recently thought about when I was watching something with my sister that's five years old and we were watching Frozen. When you watch these cartoons that we all grow up with, we are given a set of norms and values and about and, and certain images about the world on a plate that even a child can digest and can grow up with. What would uh, a Disney movie about solar punk look like? Oh man, I mean, you know, I think, I think my friend Jay would um, would object to the idea 
that Disney could could do something solar punk right? because, <laughs> because they're, you know, they're a huge bit of the status quo, right? Maybe they don't want the world to be on fire, but they're a, this massive power center uh, and, and, you know, edifice of cultural power that has sort of con- consolidated very strongly and wants to defend its position at all costs. And and so he he would say, don't look to Disney to do a, a solar punk thing. Do it yourself, right? Make your own culture, not um, have our sort of main mode of cultural engagement be as as consumers or fans or what have you, right? I mean, fan, fandom culture is really powerful these days and interesting, but particularly Disney has, has I think, often disappointed, right? I mean, the, the Marvel movies got bad and Pixar movies like aren't what they used to be and haven't shifted to stay really relevant to the conversations that we need to have. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but you could take a kind of down with Disney and, and, and you know, solar punk is a counterculture and you, you can't be counterculture and have all the power at, at the same time. That said, Disney, call me. I can. I we could do something. I mean, the que- you know the question is is sure if Disney wanted to go to a bunch of solar like people who've written about solar punk and it's like write us a, a hundred million dollar animated Pixar adventure about so a solar punk future that could be you know a really cool project, right? I mean, probably it would come with lots of contradictions. There would be questions about like how much of a sort of anti-corporate message could you have in there? Probably not as many as people think, right? Because like um, there are anti-corporate messages all over Disney movies uh, a lot of the time, right? It's part of how capitalism has like learned to absorb critiques of itself, right? And so you can be sort of anti-corporation and and be pro-Disney is apparently something that people are capable of, right? I have friends who are who are very committed leftists and also like proposed to each other at Disney World recently. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's something that Disney has has worked really hard to establish itself uh, as as the kind of corporation that you can you can do that with. Um, and because they're just so powerful and everywhere. Um, so, anyways, um, you know, let's make our own culture, but also let's like not. I I don't know like. I wouldn't object to if Disney was like, we want, it's time to do a solar punk movie. This is the new hot thing. And ask me to consult. I'd be like, sure, I'll tell you everything I've told these people with the podcast. I'll, I'll write some stuff. Maybe you're not like, if it's objectionable to you, if it offends your investors, then you won't use it. Right. I mean, that's sort of how cultural production works. Uh, but, you know, if we, if we had a really mainstream solar punk, you know, movie or, or TV product that could be really powerful you know i mean i think we shouldn't underestimate the cultural significance of of james cameron's avatar right i mean i think there's a lot that people get really mad about the subtext and the white savior and so forth but the text is hey you scientists who are are collaborating the corporate imperialist pigs you need to pick up an an ak-47 and and join up with the indigenous peoples and a movement of resistance that's what the movies are actually telling people to, to do. And uh, so, and, you know, come with all kinds of values that are, are sort of solar punk adjacent. Maybe people are going to disagree with me on this, but 
I mean, it is kind of wild to see shoot the Marines in a like the Marines are the bad guys. The indigenous peoples are the good guys in one of the biggest movies of all time. Right. Given the the stranglehold that or given the influence that the U.S. military has on Hollywood. So. Anyhow, I mean, that's uh uh there there's a there's a, a take i guess <laughs> very good point very good point uh i i have a last question on this topic actually about social engineering uh you know it's it's kind of like how do how do we educate people in the right way to take the right decisions and it's about gamification of the green new deal and you've spoken about this briefly you just mentioned it as an idea and i was so fascinated about it i really really wanted you to um maybe share some thoughts on how this could be done to incentivize better choices by, you know, all sorts of people in society by gamifying this, um, yeah, Green New Deal. Oh, man, I what did I even say about that? I don't know. I mean, I think that if we're, you know, if we are, are going to take up a big cultural project like the Green New Deal, there are ways that we can conceive of, of parts of that as play, right? And uh, there are, are sort of ways that in games and gamification can communicate to people incentives that can be pro-social as opposed to just pro-consumption or whatever, right? The Adrian Hans got his sort of gamification book, and I think it does a good job of critiquing gamification as a as a force and and sort of say like, well, it's kind of not as powerful as we thought. And, and, all, and usually it's used for, for, you know, kind of noxious purposes, but also it's like a lot of things, right? What would it look like if we turn to this particular concept uh, and used our powers for good? Because it's been, we've had sort of a hundred years of, of, you know, advertising and very potent, highly resourced cultural production and using those powers for evil, right? For not evil, for neutral, for the market, for selling people shit and making people, you know, uh, spend their time on on things and buy things that they don't necessarily need because that's how you control flows of money and how you extract money from from populations. That I think there's all kinds of, of questions of, you know, I'm not trying to like use the master's tools to tear down the master's house, right? But like, um, I think it, it's an open, it's an open question, what tools are going to be useful for for this kind of project and what aren't. I, I yeah, I don't want to um, come out and be like, let's gamify the Green New Deal. I don't want to be the gamify the Green <laughs> New Deal guide. So don't please no <laughs> listeners associate that with me. But let's, you know, there's opportunities out here for us to find all kinds of modes of of uh, participation and some of them are going to be familiar and some of them are going to be wholly new and some of them are going to be repurposing of stuff that had worked for for the corporations and the status quo two things right I'm, i don't want to i'm not going to go all in on like let's game of solar punk is about gamification of sustainability that doesn't seem like the right call to me but if someone came to me and said oh i've got this cool idea to gamify some aspect of solar punk or or some some aspect of sustainability and do you want to help i'm sure right because people come to me and ask for my help and my takes on things and i'll give them so um you know and, and if this and if some one of your listeners has a clearer idea of what gamification of the green new deal might mean i know i'm all ears because i don't i don't have a super clear notion so 
but I don't think you're fully, you, you know, you're being, you're being uh, protective of, of your, of your reputation here. But I don't think what you said now contradicts itself because the Green New Deal is something, is the master already doing something. You know, the Green New Deal yeah, is something yeah. that companies and big companies and nations have to agree on. And then they will be using their good old tools, you know, to socially engineer us to make other decisions. It's just more that um, I very much think that this is a likely outcome that we're going to be, that we're going to end up with um, very similar modes of action as you had, you know, in in crises in America or in the Soviet Union that you have different factories uh, competing with one another in productivity kind of how you had in plan, planned economy or, yeah, in America, just about productivity day to day. I think this is going to be something that, you know, could be about CO2 emissions, reducing your CO2 footprint or doing bingos on how sustainable you were last year. You know, it's it could really take these shapes. And I was just wondering if you thought about in regards to speculation mm. uh, about how this could be achieved by other powers, not necessarily by you. I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. solar punk should be the source of the gamification. Well, okay, yeah. I suppose from that angle, yeah, it's a good it's a good point that there there is a, a longstanding impulse, partially as a result of how the fossil fuel companies have wanted to frame this problem, that they're just supplying a commodity, and if we want to deal with this, well, then we have to find ways to reduce consumption, and then they'll produce less. I I think that there's a lot of bullshit there, but. Um, Lots of people really have glommed on to this idea of the carbon footprint. How do I shrink my footprint and, and finding ways to make that sort of a daily a part of daily life? And I do think there is some part of, uh, like, solar punk is partially an outgrowth of trying to view a whole life and built around this kind of consideration and being thoughtful about our consumption and our choices as consumers. And there are some major choices that we can make, like when we get a, when our furnace gives out and it's, or our water heater goes out and it's time to re replace one, we should really get the electric version, right? We should not get the gas version because the more of those we can switch to electric, the sooner the easier it'll be to get off fossil fuels. You know, I'm less convinced on the whole, like, you know, take a, you're doing your part by taking a tote bag to the grocery instead of uh, getting a plastic bag, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's been sort of critiqued to death. Um, I guess I, I've been playing, <laughs> been playing around with a metaphor that, you know, it's not the carbon footprint we should worry about. It's the carbon tire tracks. The where someone is like doing donuts in our in our garden and we need to go out there and stop them and not, you know, fixate on on whether or not, you know, by walking out of our house and onto the grass where we're somehow doing the same thing as this person with and you know, it or an even better way to look at the metaphor is we're in a car and you know, we should not fixate on how wide the wheels are, right? That's not reducing our carbon footprint. It's kind of like being like, okay, we're, yeah, we're going to drive off this cliff, but um, that we should really make sure that our, our wheels are as narrow as possible so that we're not like leaving big tracks on the ground. No, we should stop the car. We should get out, change the mode of transportation. Um, but, and, you know, probably the sort of personal uh, daily sustainability choices, you know, there's some gamification aspects of that. There's probably some big gamification aspects of getting millions of people on board with radically different infrastructural systems that we need to build, right? So 
you know, r- room for everything. But um, yeah, let's let's stop the car and and not uh, not try and just change the tires. All right, that's a, that's a clear message. <laughs> Okay, Andrew, today we spoke about so, so many things. We started, you know, with Solarpunk, we went into politics, we talked about how to translate speculation into activism, and then we kind of just talked about speculative fiction and the importance of it in inspiring the contemporary society. And um, Lola and I, you know, we started this podcast because we wanted to give people hope. We saw that a lot of people in our generation, they simply cannot imagine a future that is not capitalist, not going into hell at 200 kilometers an hour. So we are trying to show people that there is a hopeful scenario that they can imagine themselves inhabiting in the future. So on that note, I wanted to ask you as a speculative writer, as a futurist, as a thinker, what gives you hope? Yeah, um... You know, I, I get asked this a lot and it's always kind of something that I feel like I don't have a perfect answer to. You know, one, I mean, solar punk being as as popular and 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 big and and people finding it and and it clicking for them, it resonating, that gives me a lot of hope, right? And the fact that so many people can clearly identify as a problem the fact that it's hard to imagine what a sustainable world would actually look like and are actively trying to overcome that, that gives me hope. The fact that uh, solar and and wind energy is orders of magnitude cheaper today than we thought it was going to be today, 20 years ago, man, there's a lot of hope to get out of that, right? I mean, that seems like a real stroke of good good luck for our our chances. And I think that there's a lot of, yeah, liberatory aspects to these technologies that we could explore, and that gives me hope. The fact that I have seen a great deal of uh, shift away from this kind of neoliberal, there is no alternative over the last five, seven years. There was so much not an alternative in 2015 that nobody even asked the question, right? Um, I mean, that's not entirely true, right? Occupy, right? Very much asked the question, right? But now people spend a lot of time complaining about the fact. And and yeah, it's the, like the fact that the sort of capitalist power structures have been able to withstand the sort of in, increasing uh, dissatisfaction that millions and millions of people have with the, the system at large. I mean, you know, that's, that's sort of worrying, right? I mean, it's a very resilient system, it turns out, and has been for decades. But there's certain kinds of power that we know for a fact that um, if you can build, capitalism really uh, bends to, and that's like labor power, right? And we're seeing a huge upsurge in the labor movement here in America. I mean, France has always had a very powerful labor movement. And hopefully we can, you know, it'd, it'd be beautiful to have unionized uh, American firefighters fighting the cops on the streets to defend the strike, <laughs> you know, the way you all get up to. And and it seems like a possibility, right? So. Yeah, that gives me a lot of hope that to, to see this transformation happen in workplaces and in, in so many sort of small and big parts of our of our society. Um, the labor, you know, the unions are back, baby. And I don't know, I think at some point you always got to throw out the Vakov Havel hope definition, right? So I throw this out a lot. So let's just give it to your listeners. And, you know, Vakov Havel was poet, playwright, dissident who became the president of the Czech Republic after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And 
you know, a really kind of interesting, inspiring guy, right? There's something, you know, a politician, but also he's very anti-political, but that's when he was like in jail for being a political dissident. But he has this definition of hope that I first heard from Bruce Sterling um, and has sort of incorporated into a lot of how I think about solar punk, which is that, you know, hope is not thinking that things are going to turn out okay. It's, it's not the same thing as optimism. Optimism is what makes you optimistic, right? Like I could give you all these sorts of things about leading indicators of solar installation in China and stuff like that, right? But hope is not the same thing as optimism. Hope is the belief that what you're doing makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. Hope is the belief that what you're doing makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. So you can start to ask, okay, what does it look like if we make good choices? And what does that world bring to us? Then that's where you start doing doing a solar punk. Or So yeah, I, I hope that even if you're pessimistic, even if you're like, oh man, we are doomed and there's not much we can do about it. The rational activity is to act as though we can get out of this and figure out what is, even if it is an extremely narrow path, what is the path? So I mean, ho hope I think has always got to be this kind of collective possibility, right? You can be optimistic or pessimistic as a person, but you can only be hopeful as a part of something bigger. Mm -hmm.